On September 16th, in a ceremony on the White House lawn, the United Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Bahrain agreed to normalize diplomatic relations with the State of Israel. This is the first of such bilateral agreements between the Jewish state and its Arab neighbors in 26 years. Welcome to Middle East Policy Cast, episode 74 for September 21st, 2020. I'm Erica Nagley, press officer at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Today, we're diving into the new wave of capital and normalization between Arab countries and the state of Israel. And so there was a confluence of, of interests that led to this deepening of, of the relations between, between uh, Israel and the Gulf, uh, really under the table, as they say here. And I think what we saw yesterday was really this relationship come, uh, come above ground and above the table and really uh, ratified in, in a peace treaty. Why a new generation of American warplanes is testing this nascent relationship? The decision to sell any sort of arms package to any country in the Middle East or outside of the Middle East should not be an easy decision. It should be a deliberative, hard decision because selling weapons is a, is a tremendous responsibility and it is an expression of confidence in how the partner country purchasing or acquiring those weapons is going to use them. And whether this truly is the dawn of a new Middle East. These are two states, two small states, that took these decisions for very specific national reasons and their relations with the U.S. Does it follow that others will follow? Not necessarily. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. And today we're joined by Ambassador Barbara Leaf, the former U.S. Ambassador to the UAE. Currently, she is the Ruth and Sid Lapidus Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Gedould Program on Arab Politics. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you, and I'm very happy to be here with my colleagues. We're also pleased to welcome Dana Struhl, former senior professional staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and now the Shelley and Michael Casson Fellow at the Washington Institute. Welcome, Dana. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Finally, we have freelance journalist extraordinaire and Washington Institute adjunct fellow Neri Zilber joining us from Tel Aviv. Hi, Neri. Hi, Erica. Pleasure to be with you all today. So thank you all so much for joining today. I'd like to start our discussion by kind of just diving in headfirst to the deal itself. Neri, so since you're the storyteller out of all of us, can you talk a bit about how this deal, or rather set of deals between the UAE, Bahrain, and Israel come together? Sure. Uh, thanks, Erica. Great to be with you all. You know, the question, where do these deals come from, right, uh, is a good one. Uh, Trump and Netanyahu uh, yesterday both said that it took uh, Israel 72 years to sign two peace agreements with their Arab neighbors, and and uh, they got uh, the next two, the last two signed yesterday uh, in a month. So, you know, rather rather historic, definitely, uh, definitely an interesting turn of events in the Middle East. Um, I think Israel Gulf ties uh, really go back uh, to the early 90s. Uh, some Israeli officials I've spoken to argue that it, they go back even further to the 70s. Um, so these ties aren't new. Uh, I think uh, definitely they they became 
uh, more deeper and more substantive uh, really over the past decade. And I think uh, two, two reasons for that. Uh, number one, I think the rise of Iran, the Iranian threat in the region uh, became a lot more acute, I think both for Israel and the Gulf Arab states. Uh, and then really uh, after 2011 and the upheaval of the Arab Spring, uh, you saw a lot of uh, countries in the Middle East uh, essentially fall apart, uh, a lot of instability and, and unfortunately violence. Uh, and you also saw the rise of uh, radical Islamic uh, jihadism, uh, really Sunni jihadism, and uh, and the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And I think the Gulf Arab states also viewed that as an acute threat, uh, as did Israel. And so there was a confluence of of interests that led to this deepening of of the relations between between uh, Israel and the Gulf, uh, really under the table, as they say here, uh, primarily technology and, and various uh, cyber weapons, um, security ties, intelligence cooperation, and the like. And I think what we saw yesterday was really this relationship come uh, come above ground and above the table, and really uh, ratified in in a peace treaty. So. I was definitely surprised when the president announced this deal. And these normalization efforts definitely haven't been a public U.S. policy priority. Were you all kind of expecting this to happen? Was it also a surprise to you? I'll start there and just say, um, Neri really laid out the the pretext and the architecture for the relationships that, that has existed for a long time. And a lot of that, as he said, is about the convergence of, of threat perceptions by both Israel and particularly the Gulf states, the UAE and Bahrain, given where their positions are, are very vulnerable to Iranian aggression. But, but what is, what accelerated all of this this summer was that after the release of the Trump vision for peace or the Trump administration's proposal for what, for what a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would look like. And you'll note here that I'm not saying a two-state solution because the Trump peace plan did not specifically demand a two-state outcome. And then after that, a series of events unfolded where it was quite clear that the White House had given a green light to the Israeli government to unilaterally annex parts of the West Bank, which created a lot of pressure and pushback here in the United States, as well as from various parties uh, in Israel and certainly across the Middle East and, and in most European governments. So all of that culminated in the Emirati ambassador to the United States, Yusuf Otaiba, uh, writing an op-ed in an Israeli newspaper in Hebrew that specifically said, we can normalize relations with you, the full spectrum of what a, de a, a developed relationship would look like, but not if there's unilateral annexation. So you, Israel, can pick unilateral annexation or relationship with us and after us, presumably being the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, other countries might follow suit. So there was an open hand extended there. And the Trump administration, I think, quite logically uh, followed the momentum that the UAE created to prevent what most people agreed was going to be uh, pretty disastrous for stability in the West Bank, for Israel maintaining its Jewish and democratic identity, for broader regional peace and stability, etc., and facilitated what the Emiratis were clearly already open to, which was normalizing relations with Israel. So to me, uh, not really a surprise at all, because basically the Trump vision for peace accelerated, I think, a lot of trends that were already moving in this direction. And what we've done is avert what could have been a major crisis, which would have been unilateral annexation. And if I can jump in there, I would say I would I would give it a slightly different um, 
edge or, or nuance, which is that, you know, in a sense, um, the, the, the bullet had been dodged um, in late July, uh, the, the bullet of, of potential annexation. And I think Neri can speak to this uh, probably in greater detail even than, than we in the United States. But, but Bibi Netanyahu was under tremendous pressure in Israel to get back to a focus on domestic issues and, and, and above all, the pandemic. But what the Emiratis did was essentially flip things on their head. And so, yes, Yusuf had done this uh, precedent-breaking op-ed in an Israeli uh, daily to put the choice before the Israelis. But then the Emiratis came back. He came back at Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed's direction and said, let's just do this then. But on condition that you, the United States, you, the Trump administration, ensure, time-bound, ensure that annexation does not move forward. And uh, and the deal came together. And I think in that sense, um, you know, it was it was a masterstroke um, and it suited all three sets of leaders. It did. It definitely did. But um, I, I recognize that there was some vagueness, I guess, about how this annexation being taken off the table would actually work in practice. Do we have more clarity on that now? We we do. Um, you know, there was a report a few days ago in the Times of Israel, and I'd heard a similar rumors slash uh, reports out of various sources uh, that Israel had given a commitment uh, to suspend annexation for the coming three years. Um, from what I was told, there was a, a negotiation behind the scenes. Uh, the Emiratis wanted uh, five years, and I think uh, Netanyahu and the Trump administration brought them down to three, uh, ostensibly leaving the option of annexation open in any second Trump term. So I think that is that is pretty solid, uh, despite the fact that Netanyahu himself denies uh, that any such commitment was given um, and that annexation was only suspended uh, and not really uh, take off the table. And Neri has touched on two really intriguing aspects of this. One, uh, what we'll see increasingly, which is sort of the uh, the meeting and, and in a sense, uh, clashing uh, personas or, or public natures, public versus private natures of the Emirati political culture versus the Israeli political culture. So this piece on annexation, I dare say the Emiratis uh, expected, in fact, I know they expected that it would bubble up in the Israeli in, in the Israeli uh, domestic domain and be and 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 so they have simply stayed mute on the on the time frame. But what they didn't expect was the issue, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. I think uh, the issue of the F thirty five bouncing straight into the uh, domestic fray and becoming quite a political football. Right. So yesterday, what did the parties actually sign at the White House and? Is there anything still left to figure out in terms of bilateral agreements, economic accords? Absolutely. There's a lot to figure out. So first of all, Israel and the UAE signed a treaty because there was enough time to negotiate that. And a lot of it is is aspirational. So what happens now is there's eight different sets of agreements on things like uh, avoiding double taxation, civil aviation, etc., so those are all specific agreements to instrumentalize normalization between the two countries. And all of that work will take place over the coming year. And then ostensibly, as those things come into place, then there will be an exchange of ambassadors and an exchange of embassies. 
on the Bahrain side, um, there's just a declaration of peace, not an actual treaty, because the announcement by the government of Bahrain to normalize relations happened so fast, there wasn't sufficient time for negotiations between an Israeli delegation and a Bahraini delegation. Notably, what's interesting about, about these two agreements, though, that were signed yesterday is we should remind our listeners here, neither the UAE nor Bahrain has ever been at war or gone to war with Israel. So there was no, these aren't peace treaties in the way, in the sense that we think of peace treaties. They're not like the Egypt and Jordan peace treaties in that sense. There's no exchange of territory. There's no declaration of non-hostilities because these countries have never actually fought each other. This is very much about people to people ties, economic ties, et cetera. And given the fact that we've spent a lot of time talking about no annexation or no annexation for three years, no annexation for four years, and what is the future of the Palestinians and whether or not these Gulf Arab countries are going to continue to advocate for a Palestinian state of its own, there's no mention of the Palestinians in either agreement, neither the treaty with UAE nor the declaration with Bahrain. Dana uh, touched on on a very important point here. These are two countries, like the rest of the the Gulf uh, family of nations, that have never been to war with Israel. So there is not the acrimony, there's not the uh, legacy of loss of life and and, and blood and treasure, etc. The question of how this fits into, or how the Palestinian fits into these normalizations, is pretty straightforward. Palestinians don't, strictly speaking, the Palestinian issue set, strictly speaking, does not it does not fit into either one of these uh, bilateral relationships. Now, yes, the Emiratis used the threat the, the the threat that was hanging out there of an Israeli move to annex as much as thirty percent of the West Bank, which was foreseen in in the Trump plan, uh, as as the, to to drive into that and say on condition that this doesn't hurt, happen for a, a series of years. We will proceed and accelerate what we were already heading down the tra- track to do. Bahrain, as Dana mentioned, was pretty much um, hustled into this uh, this arrangement in the sense that Bahrain too was engaging in normalization with a small n for the last five, six, seven years, as like the UAE. But it had made clear in the immediate aftermath of the UAE announcement that it was not planning to do so. Uh, and and with reference to uh, you know the Palestinian core set of issues, two state solution, etc., the the administration put a lot of pressure on on Bahrain, and and so they agreed. But in the immediate term, these are not these are not bilateral relationships that rest on specific progress in the on on the Palestinian set of issues. I'll just add uh, two things. Number one, um, you know, we saw it yesterday in the speeches, and also you see it in the text of the of the agreements. Um, it, when the Palestinians were mentioned, if they were mentioned, it was it's primarily lip service, uh, and at no point uh, did anyone really say uh, or write down the fact uh, that the end solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be a two-state one, uh, two-state solution. Uh, and I think that's telling. Uh, also, looking at the at the actual text of the Abraham Accords, um, you know, they they name check the the Egypt Israel peace treaty. They name check the Egypt Jordan peace treaty, um, but there's no reference to the 1993 uh, Israel PLO treaty. The what's called the Declaration of Principles, or or essentially Oslo, the uh, the first Oslo Accords. Uh, and I think that's also that's also telling. Uh, likely not a mistake. 
Uh, and then the second point I'll just say from from the domestic Israeli point of view, um, the entire political system here was kept in the dark about what was actually agreed to uh, up until yesterday when the text was was released. Um, Netanyahu kept it very close to to the chest. It was only him, uh, his ambassador in Washington, his national security advisor, and, and really primarily the head of the Mossad uh, that were negotiating this deal. And so now, uh, upon Netanyahu's return home, uh, I think next week, both the government and then the Knesset are supposed to actually take up uh, these peace deals and uh, and agree to them and, and ratify them. And it'll be interesting to me uh, whether any, say, hidden clauses or annexes uh, actually come out. Um, in other words, whether the deals are actually what's on the paper or whether there's uh, perhaps something more to do to there. Yes, uh, that's a that's a really important point that Neri has made. Uh, you know, typically or not not always. I mean, you can have a straightforward uh, a treaty or agreement, a peace agreement, etc., that is fully out in the clear, transparent, and and open to public viewing. You can also have sidebar agreements that are, in our terms, classified. Um, and so there is conceivably, if not now. Uh, along the way, such agreements that would be made between, in particular, the UAE and Israel on a range of, of security and defense matters. You have to remember that Israel is a coalition government. Uh, Netanyahu is the prime minister because he entered into a coalition with Blue White. Benny Gantz, the defense minister, is not Likud, not a member of Netanyahu's party. And Netanyahu is under a lot of political pressure himself in Israel. Israel is the first country that's going to have to go back into full lockdown as a result of COVID-19. There's a lot of uh, finger pointing that Netanyahu's administration mishandled the Israeli response to COVID. He is has been indicted for corruption himself. Um, there is concern both uh, in the United States and in Israel about the overly warm relationship with, between Netanyahu and Trump and whether or not this has complicated future relations between Israel and the and Democrats, given the fact that it is so important for Israel's long term security for support here in the United States to be bipartisan. And so against all of that, and then you have to think about here in the United States, Trump uh, up up for reelection in November. And he is also under a lot of domestic pressure for his administration's handling of covid uh, for the associated economic recession and and you know some of the social justice very active lively debates we're having here. So it was in the interest of these heads of state to keep it private and then try to flip the script and have everyone focus over here on the great peacemakers rather than the domestic problems at home. Um, we will get into the question of whether or not the U.S. commitment um, to sell the most sophisticated fighter jet on the market right now, the F-35, received the approval or the green light or the consent of Bibi Netanyahu without consulting his security establishment. And frankly, the same thing here on the American side. Did Donald Trump and his closest advisors commit to something that they can't just deliver on their own without consulting with Congress and with the Pentagon and the State Department? So I think some of it was timing and, and wanting to just deflect from you know, the the very active focus on other issues uh, in Israel and in the United States um, and, and really position both of them as, you know, delivering a strategic change for the region and, and focusing on themselves as these great statesmen that can make these deals. More from Middle East PolicyCast after the break. So Ambassador Leaf, 
I was wondering, seeing as you are the former U.S. ambassador to the United Arab Emirates, what you thought the UAE was hoping to get from this normalization deal with Israel. What I would say is that Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, who is the de facto a head of state um, in uh, the absence of his elder half-brother who has been sidelined for years with illness. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed uh, has been fixated on, on a couple of things over the last uh, six to eight years. Uh, one of them is the nature of his tiny, vulnerable country's relationship with Washington over the course of, of two different, very different uh, administrations. Uh, the other, as Neri talked earlier, it was the roiling turmoil of the of the region, with the added dollop of two non-Arab countries of significant size and and would be great power um, dimensions, Turkey and Iran, and the pressures that they place on the region and and the degree to which they intervene in um, intervene in Arab affairs as as many people in the region would put it. And to go back to the first issue, Sheikh Mohammed has been fixated on this issue of the relationship with the U.S. Uh, and the degree to which he and the UAE leadership aspire to, to take it up to another level. He has always termed the U.S. as the UAE's premier strategic partner. But he has often been frustrated by a feeling that Washington doesn't return the favor, doesn't return the, 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 the perspective. And in sealing this deal with Israel, essentially accelerating a, a trend, a trend line, a policy line that he was already pursuing, which was normalization with a small n, and then it became normalization, full, fully, uh, full official normalization. He was seeking in the first instance to elevate the relationship that the UAE has to that strategic level. And so now he can rightly feel, and it's been reflected in commentary by the U.S. National Security Advisor and uh, Jared Kushner and others, that the UAE is now essentially in a club of two with Israel in terms of how the U.S. looks at partners, strategic partners in the region. And because of that uh, entry into that special club, he also... Uh, hits another objective that he has had for some six or eight years, which is to acquire certain very high-end advanced defense systems that were out of reach. And the F-35 is the most important one of these systems, but not the only one. Uh, so he also, uh, I will say, and so there are two other set of baskets of issues. One, by taking this step, he deepens the relationship with Donald Trump's Washington. But he is also thinking about the day when it is, whether it's in January, Joe Biden's Washington or a post-Trump administration in, in four years. And it's the Democratic Party. And how how does he how does the UAE maneuver in this in this political space? So this this move has great bipartisan uh, uh, approval. And so that's that's a win. And finally, then, of course, there are all the other manifold benefits that come with taking a rather narrow covert relationship fully out into daylight and being able to at will fully develop all these other domains of cooperation, economic investment, uh, tech, uh, tourism, culture, and so forth. So 
knowing that Dana is sort of the the congressional expert, do you think this deal will enhance bipartisan support for the UAE in Congress? Do you think, um, I know not a ton of Democrats attended the White House ceremony yesterday, but do you think the UAE will be effective in in this respect? So uh, that's a really good question and, and a few thoughts on it. First of all, all all members of Congress, all all of the House of Representatives and all U.S. senators, my understanding is, were invited um, to the White House signing ceremony yesterday. And I think that many people chose not to attend, not because they don't support widening the circle of peace between Israel and others in the Middle East, specifically um, Gulf Arab governments, but mostly out of concerns about the COVID-19 precautions and protocols uh, that were going to be implemented by by Trump's team yesterday. Um, and if you look, for those of you who watch the visuals, a mask wearing was not enforced. Uh, the chairs were not seated at the socially distance six feet apart, et cetera. So, um, I, you know, I think a lot of people chose not to attend out of an abundance of caution for health and not because of lack of support for what this is. And these visiting dignitaries, especially um, UAE and Bahrain, are doing a series of events across Washington, D.C. in the think tank world. will have meetings on Capitol Hill, et cetera. And there have been resolutions um, of support introduced on a bipartisan basis in both the Senate and the House welcoming the UAE-Israel Treaty, and the Israel-Bahrain Declaration of Peace. So I don't think that there's anyone that thinks that these, these policies, these decisions are, are bad for Israel, bad for the region, bad for UAE or Bahrain, or that there's a lack of support. So I'll just say that, number one. Number two, in terms of uh, will will the UAE's decision and, and, and the vision of Mohammed bin Zayed enhance bipartisan support for the UAE? And, and my answer is it could. So here's the deal. Um, the UAE has in recent years encountered um, increased questioning and skepticism by members of Congress on a bipartisan basis that it has not experienced since I believe 2005 or 2006 when Dubai Ports World um, attempted uh, to um, uh, sign a contract to administer some ports in the United States. And there was tremendous pushback about Emirati investment in the U.S. economy like this. The UAE recognized that they had some image and um, information uh, to get out about about who they are, what they stand for, that they could be a strategic partner of the United States, et cetera. The ambassador Yusuf Otaiba comes to Washington and has really done a tremendous job getting people, especially in Washington, familiar with the UAE and enhancing soft power and working on both the hard and the soft aspects of this relationship. But in recent years, especially because of the Emirati decision to be a very active partner in the Saudi coalition in Yemen, there's an ongoing civil war in Yemen, uh, extremely high civilian casualty rates, um, one of the worst humanitarian crises, according to the United Nations in the world, etc. And the UAE specifically has been singled out by members of Congress for specific actions and policies it has undertaken with respect to its role in Libya, in Yemen. And then separately in Libya, um, the decisions by Abu Dhabi in terms of who it supports and weapons it supplies in Libya have encountered tremendous resistance in, in Washington for further destabilizing the conflict and not driving towards a political process that will stabilize North Africa, save lives, et cetera. Um, 
So there are a lot of unanswered questions by members of Congress that both the UAE and the Trump administration could have done better to engage over the course of several years. And I would also say in terms of this agreement, the, the whether or not it will enhance bipartisan support will be up to the Emirati government. It will be up to the Trump administration to make the case, uh, not just for um, uh, stabilizing the strategic partnership, but whether or not the United States should be selling ever more sophisticated weapon systems to the UAE. But I also think a key determiner of the future of bipartisan support for the UAE will be up to the Israelis. And here, many people might who are listening to this might be familiar that the best advocate for Egypt, for example, on the Hill has never been the White House, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the White House, but Israel itself, who will argue for we have to stay committed to the partnership with Egypt. Security assistance continues to need to flow to Egypt. They're a really important security partner. They've maintained the peace treaty with Israel, et cetera. So Israeli support for widening bipartisan support will be critical going forward. Can I just touch on uh, what Dana said? I think that's a fantastic overview. And I just add that uh, Netanyahu has done a great job, especially in recent years and especially under the Trump administration, uh, to kind of reinforce the notion that uh, the path to Washington and really the, the path to the U.S. administration's heart runs through Jerusalem. Uh, he's leveraged that really, really well uh, in recent years and really uh, in recent weeks. And so I think for the Gulf Arabs, uh, Emiratis, Bahrain, even Saudi to a certain extent, and you mentioned Egypt, um, in the past it was true also of the Palestinian Authority, uh, the, the greatest advocates uh, for, these, for these various Arab states um, is oftentimes Israel. Uh, by the way, it's not unique to the Middle East. You also see uh, Israel kind of playing that role with various Eastern European states. And so uh, I think that, you know, we asked at the top, um, where did this deal uh, come about? How, you know, why now? I think that's a big part of, of uh, the reason for the deal coming about and also the timing. My one question is what happens if, if Biden actually wins? Uh, and the Democrats take over in Washington, uh, and Israel's own position in Washington becomes maybe a bit more precarious than uh, than it has been over the past uh, three and a half years. I'll just respond to that and say I think there's a lot of concern about what a Biden administration may be may imply for the U.S.-Israel relationship, but also for the future of U.S. commitment, standing, and investment in the Middle East. So I don't speak for the Biden campaign, but I'm certainly following what the people who do say about a Biden administration's policy in the Middle East. And they've been very clear that a President Biden would be committed in an ironclad way to the security of Israel. There's certainly talk about changing the over-militarization of U.S. presence in the Middle East and rebuilding the architecture of our diplomatic and civilian aspects of government that engage in the Middle East. So when this comes to um, the F-35 sale or the, or the future of, of the U.S. commitment to the UAE in, in a Biden administration, um, I think that there's going to be a lot of thinking about whether or not the policies of every government in the region enhance U.S. national security and contribute to solutions in the region. So certainly normalization between Abu Dhabi and Israel, between Manama and Israel 
have the potential to deliver major strategic changes that are in the interest of Israel, in the interest of Middle East stability, and in the interest of the United States. Selling the F-35 is not just about Israel, and it shouldn't just be about normalization. The, the, there is a whole foreign policy rationale underpinning any U.S. arms sale to any country, not just in the Middle East. Um, arms sales are a key aspect of foreign policy. It is an expression of confidence in a partnership uh, with any government and any military that's acquiring those weapons. It means that the United States expects to cooperate with you in a military way, to do exercises with you, to share information with you. Um, that that system, whatever the weapon is, will be maintained and sustained in a responsible way, used in a responsible way, um, that there's confidence in decisions by that government and how and when it chooses to use military force. And also in the Middle East, uh, Barbara, Ambassador Leaf earlier talked about great power competition and certainly Russia, China and other countries, including Israel, uh, Turkey, India, have their own very uh Big aspirations for being arms exporters, particularly China and Russia, are looking to challenge U.S. dominance in the arms export market in the region. Um, and China is known to steal U.S. technology. And so when it comes to sensitive defense technology, especially on a system like the F-35, given that there is nothing comparable on the market from any other country, we, the United States, need to have confidence that if that system is in the UAE, it can be protected. And I'm not saying that it can't be protected. What I'm saying is those conversations by the Trump administration with members of Congress who get a say in whether or not the United States moves forward with arms sales have not begun yet. And let me just add uh, that this flipping, essentially, by the Trump administration, this flipping of the the process, uh, which is to say, uh, Normally, when considering such a momentous sale uh, as the F-35, there would be a series of very detailed and lengthy, exhaustive, uh, quiet conversations between U.S. defense, state, uh, National Security Council, other members of the executive branch, and their Israeli counterparts over a really a protracted period of time to come to some understanding uh, for both sides as to how this bumps up against against the issue of QME. That hasn't happened. That needs to happen in order for this to go through all the congressional hoops. Uh, and so you have a misalignment of, of calendars right at the beginning of this. And the Emiratis have wanted this system for six or seven years. They've been asking for it. Uh, QMB was a big barrier, was the principal barrier. Uh, and now they feel that they have surmounted that barrier and have an expectations, have an expectation that things will proceed smartly forward. Um, I'm just wondering if you can kind of backpedal a little bit and take us through why the F-35 is, is such a big deal and why and what basically is QME and why it matters in this case? I'll take the QME part first. Um, so um, QME stands for Qualitative Military Edge. And in layman's terms, basically, it's military superiority. So since um, the Six-Day War in 
No, sorry, not the 1964. <laughs> sorry. Um, since the October War in 1973, the United States, as a matter of policy, attempted to balance protecting Israel's military superiority against any weapon sale that it sold to any other country in the Middle East. And this can be interpreted as military superiority in many ways. It could be quantity. How many F-16 fighter jets does one country have versus another um, end use restrictions? Where are certain weapons going to be based? How close geographically to Israel? Um, quality. So what kind of tech is on a certain system, et cetera? And then in 2008, this notion of qualitative military edge or QME was codified in U.S. law. And, and so now there's a legal requirement for the executive branch when selling any weapon to any country in the Middle East to provide a certification to Congress that Israel's military superiority or qualitative military edge will be protected. And there's this is not an insurmountable challenge. It's been done many times in the past. In fact, in 2013 and again in 2015, the Obama administration sold some increasingly sophisticated, very large packages of weapons to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. A lot of that was about uh, acknowledging the threat from Iran and setting the theater and, and providing some reassurances to Gulf Arab partners that the United States would stand with them and wanted to equip them and train them on those systems in the event that they had to defend themselves against Iran. And at the same time, there were very large arms sales packages announced for Israel but all of the work and negotiation on what was being sold to the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia and what was being sold to Israel as offsets and to balance its military superior, superiority were all done in advance and took years of intense diplomacy and, and technical negotiations. All of that was before Congress was notified of the intent to sell these packages. And that's what Barbara was referring to earlier in her very good point that normally the process is do all of those negotiations first. So check all the boxes on process and policy and then work with Congress to gain that bipartisan support. And here the Trump administration is flipping the script. And there's a point for doing it that way. And, and, it, and when you don't do it that way, what you see is precisely the kind of domestic political churn that you're seeing in uh, Israel and in the U.S. over this. And uh, this can bump right up against a very new and nascent, arguably fragile relationship that the UAE is establishing with Israel. Yeah, I, just to pick up on that point, uh, similar to the fact that there was no real process ahead of time uh, in Washington in terms of this arms sale, uh, there was no real uh, similar process here in Israel. Uh, the security establishment was, uh, to the best of my knowledge, kept in the dark. Uh, it kind of came as a surprise that Netanyahu, uh, with a wink and a nod perhaps, uh, okayed uh, any U.S. sale of F-35 to the UAE. Uh, he still denies it, by the way, uh, despite the fact that uh, even yesterday he was uh, sitting in the Oval Office with Trump and uh, uh, President Trump was asked whether he was, uh, in fact, going to sell F-35s to the Emiratis uh, and Trump said, you know, it should be a very easy thing to do and that we'll get it, we'll get it worked out. Uh, and Netanyahu, uh, you know, didn't, didn't even, uh, uh, disagree or, um, or say, well, you know, this flinch. Point, he, he flinched. No, he did not flinch. <laughs> no, he didn't. 
he didn't flinch. Uh, he, he, and so his eyes it, blinked rapidly. Right, uh, right. And, you know, so Netanyahu's denials uh, definitely in Israel are becoming a bit harder to, um, uh, to accept. The interesting thing to my mind uh, is the fact that both the security establishment itself – uh, as well as uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz uh, and Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi, uh, both former IDF chiefs of staff, haven't really come out and told the public what they think is the correct and proper thing uh, to do with regard to any potential sale of F-35s to the Emiratis. Um, now, you can make an argument that a peace treaty outweighs, uh, you know, nice and shiny new stealth fighters that go to to a Gulf Arab state. Um, you know, to my mind, that is a conversation that, that should happen uh, in terms of policy, uh, but even in terms of politics. Um, it's very curious to me why this isn't a bigger issue in Israel, uh, despite the fact that the media has reported on it and, and do raise it like they did yesterday at the White House. But uh, at, at this point, it seems like uh, Israel may give lip service to opposition uh, when this issue comes up on Capitol Hill. Uh, but everyone will know that uh, the opposition isn't, isn't uh, let's say, genuine. I, I just want to add to that, which which I, I don't disagree with. I, I see it a different way, which is which is both Ashkenazi and Gantz having had very intimate experience with how QME processes have gone in the past and how the U.S. government traditionally has approached these kinds of very substantial and significant arms sales, there's no reason to say anything publicly yet. That's actually being responsible stewards of, of government. Um, and we shouldn't be so surprised that that certain people, I mean, neither has um, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, or, or here Mark Esper says something very specifically, because there are equities. There are equities on the Israeli side. There are equities on the American side. There's a business case to be made. There's a, certainly a national security case. We need to talk about China. We need to talk about these issues before you sell this weapon. But but there is a process and that process and those technical discussions have not started yet. So so on this issue of Israel and, you know, this this choice, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game of normalization and Israel's QME. It is possible that going forward, how Israel and the United States thinks about protecting its military superiority changes if more countries jump on the normalization bandwagon. Now, of course, different countries that are closer geographically to Israel probably present uh, different considerations as it relates to QME, wink, wink, nod, nod, Saudi Arabia. Um, we should all be very clear here that Bahrain would not have announced its intent to normalize relations with Israel if it did not have the consent of the Saudi government. Um, but that being said, we don't have to predetermine the outcome of whether or not the UAE should be allowed to acquire the F-35. There's a lot of discussions that have to take place and they just haven't taken place yet. And in terms of what happens on the Hill, um, when the process is followed and when the Israeli security establishment feels comfortable in what the United States is doing or selling to others in the region, it's not a definitive sort of green light to members of Congress, but Israeli government officials will simply say we have no concerns. And the issue here, I fear, for members of Congress is they're not going to get a green light or a red light or even a yellow light from Israeli security officials or the Israeli ambassador or the Netanyahu administration because so much of the murkiness about this and sensitivity to the political timeline. So Netanyahu understands that Trump is up against, you know, this electoral timeline in November. 
And everyone in the region is watching both whether or not the U.S. can deliver on its commitments, which, as Trump said yesterday in the Oval Office, this should be easy. We should be able to sell the F-35. Most people who know anything about this know that it isn't easy. And frankly, as, as previously serving in the executive branch, it shouldn't be easy. Did the decision to sell any sort of arms package to any country in the Middle East or outside of the Middle East should not be an easy decision. It should be a deliberative, hard decision because selling weapons is a, is a tremendous responsibility and it is an expression of confidence in how the partner country purchasing or acquiring those weapons is going to use them. And let me just point out something that I, I know is goes into the thinking on on all sides, uh, or at least on the U.S. and Israeli side about this. Uh, Dana said quite rightly that this is not a straight business case, uh, that you sell it or you don't sell it. And it's not a narrow uh, foreign affairs uh, decision uh, process. Is this country X uh, you know, willing uh, a willing partner? Is it a capable partner? Is it good for this relationship? Typically, and for very good national security reasons for the United States, we step back, we look at the wider region and how we can anticipate other countries coming alongside and saying, yes, I'd like to do that too. When you, when you breach a barrier, as it were, technologically, and this, the F-35, uh, by any measure is is one game changing battlefield platform. I mean, we were told very straight up by uh, by defense professionals that Dana and I consulted when we did this uh, piece that we published this week. That you know, it's it's a misnomer to say the F thirty five is a fifth generation fighter aircraft. It is, but it's also this magnificent, virtually invisible battlefield platform like no other. So. The Israelis, I know, look at this and say, okay, UAE may be fine, but what about these other countries that uh, may line up? And how do we look at them? And then the U.S. has to also say, you know, 41 years later, um, the Iranians are flying uh, U.S. fighter aircraft that we sold them 40 plus years ago. Um, Okay, they're 40 years old. They're not in good repair, but still, those systems endure. But the governments change, the systems change. And a country that was a strategic partner for both the US and Israel uh, once upon a time is quite the opposite, is, is one of the most important, arguably the most important adversary enemy for, for Israel. I'll uh, just say very quickly that uh, here in Israel, you're hearing almost verbatim that exact same argument uh, against the F-35, or at least uh, a note of caution with regard to the F-35 sale, uh, that the platform itself is is really unique uh, and can't be compared to, say, uh, F-15s or F-16s. Um, and then number two, the precedent, that if you sell it to the UAE, uh, the UAE itself might not be a threat and might remain uh, stable for decades to come. Uh, but what happens when the Saudis or even the Egyptians uh, or other states uh, come and request uh, their own F-35s? Uh, but you're hearing that argument primarily from former senior security officials in the Israeli defense establishment, uh, not from the current ones. So to wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you, is this the dawn of a new Middle East, like President Trump said yesterday? Ambassador, would you like to go first? Certainly. It could be. 
but it's not clear at the moment that it will be. And I say that because these are two states, two small states that took these decisions for very specific national reasons and their relations with the U.S. Does it follow that others will follow? Not necessarily. I think the fact that it will be a warm peace, as the Emiratis have declared it, their intention to be, will be extraordinary in and of itself. But if it becomes simply a, a bolstering of one of the blocks, of the two blocks that the region is increasingly divided in, no, it, it will not be a, a wider, have a wider impact. The Palestinians naturally feel completely abandoned by these two momentous steps. And I would say that they're not necessarily. What has been largely abandoned, whatever people say uh, in the region, is the Arab Peace Initiative, the Saudi Arab Peace Initiative of 2002, which was land for peace. So it doesn't follow, however, that the Palestinians and the cause for uh, nationhood and for a two-state solution is abandoned. But the game board has been tossed about, and it now requires really able, creative diplomacy and leadership by the Palestinians, by the Israelis, and by Arab countries that are normalizing with Israel to ensure that a process starts again. Great. Shall we move on? Dana, what do you think? Is this the dawn of the new Middle East? I'm probably very cynical on this one. I do not think it's the dawn of a new Middle East. I do think it has the potential to demonstrate the mutual benefits of normalizing ties with Israel. And I think that's in the economic space, trade, agriculture, technology, entrepreneurship, tourism, etc. And if Abu Dhabi and Manama together with Israel can demonstrate the economic opportunities and, and what can be delivered by, mer- you know, developing warm relationships between, between the people and between the private sectors, between the economies and the non-security, non-intelligence base. I think it has the potential over time to be a strategic shift. But look, today, the major threats facing Israel, uh, Hezbollah's arsenal to its north, Iranian activities and its support for militias and proxies moving ever closer to Israel's border in Syria, the ongoing activity of militants and the ISIS affiliate in in Sinai in Egypt, um, Hamas and explosive balloons coming from Gaza. None of none of those issues are solved today because of the signing ceremony that happened yesterday. And when we think about the Middle East and the big uh, tectonic movements that are driving instability and deadly conflict, none of those are solved either. Iran is still much closer to a nuclear weapon today than it was several years ago. It is still actively fomenting, funding, equipping, training, and deploying proxies and militias all throughout the region. There's still a deadly conflict in Syria, and Bashar al-Assad is still sitting quite comfortably in Damascus, protected by Russia and Iran. There is still the world's worst humanitarian crisis and an ongoing uh, conflict in Yemen, where, by the way, Iran continues to provide ever-increasing sophisticated weapons to the Houthis. Um, And there's still an active conflict in Libya uh, with tremendous implications and consequences for stability in the Middle East there. 
So none of these deadly conflicts, which are the source of instability and which also drives the violent extremism that Neri mentioned at the beginning, none of that is addressed or on path to resolution despite what happened yesterday at the White House. So the dawn of the new Middle East is certainly not today, and I don't think it's tomorrow either. Neri, is this the dawn of the new Middle East? Do you think this will help or hurt the chances for two states in the future? So uh, I think the easy answer is that no, it's not the dawn of a new Middle East, uh, because there have been so many false dawns uh, in the past in the Middle East. Uh, that might be kind of the the flip or the easy answer. I think from a purely uh, Israeli viewpoint, uh, I think these are historic and significant agreements. Uh, I think the fact that uh, the I think the fact that this is both um, likely to be a warm peace, and you've seen a, a major uh, Emirati charm offensive with regard to Israel and the Israeli public uh, in recent weeks. I think that's different, and I think that's important. And I think uh, for Israelis, they view uh, these last few weeks as um, as a real opening to to the broader region. Uh, and I don't think that can be discounted uh, given the past. Uh, history between Israel and and its neighbors. Um, but to speak to your to your second question, I think uh, these deals, and this might be a bit counterintuitive. I think these deals uh, might be uh, good for the region, but perhaps bad for Israel. Uh, and I mean that in primarily uh, the the conflict with the Palestinians. I think is probably not well served by the breaking of the taboo that I just mentioned. Uh, where you have Arab states um, essentially discarding their own peace agreement, which which asked for a uh, land for peace formula, but what it really was, the Arab Peace Initiative, was was a carrot, was a piece of leverage uh, that was put out in 2002 to kind of move Israel uh, towards the idea of territorial concessions vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians. Um, now we can argue how how much of the territorial territorial concession uh, is appropriate, uh, what the context would be, what the timing would be, uh, but that was the big picture framing of it. And so what you've had now with the UAE and Bahrain deals is really an undermining of that of that notion, of that paradigm. And Netanyahu says it openly. And so if you if you are trying to move the Israeli public and the Israeli political system towards some kind of territorial compromise vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Uh, the lesson learned from these peace deals is the exact opposite, uh, that no compromise is necessary, uh, that peace will come without any uh, territorial concessions. And as Netanyahu has put it, I would argue incorrectly, this is peace for peace uh, and peace via strength. And so uh, in terms of just the, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, um, I think this is likely uh, not a great step forward uh, to any kind of resolution in that regard. Uh, which, as we all know, might have longer-term implications uh, for Israel as both a Jewish and democratic state, uh, despite the fact that, uh, it, and again, counterintuitively, Israel is uh, more integrated now in the Middle East than ever before. That was Ambassador Barbara Leaf, Dana Struhl, and Neri Zilber, all fellows with the Washington Institute for Neri's Policy. You can read their expert analysis on washingtoninstitute.org. Thank you all for joining us today on Middle East Policy Cast. I'm Erica Nagley. If you have any questions about the show, you can email us at press@washingtoninstitute.org. See you next time. Production assistance this week from Scott Rogers. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at washingtoninstitute.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at washinstitute. 
You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. We're at Washington Institute. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and help others find Middle East PolicyCast.